One of the problems we have in trying to comprehend the Word of God is that sometimes we allow our own finite logic to get in the way of accepting what God has said. Now, logic is a good thing because God gave us minds with which to think and reason. Therefore, logic is something that is an expression of God's creative handiwork in us who are made in His image. But logic can get us in trouble when we allow logic to trump what God has to say in His Word. I'm not implying that God's truth is illogical, but God's truth is often not completely comprehensible. For example, the Bible teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man. That adds up to 200%. It doesn't work. But Jesus was not and is not two persons, and neither was he or is he a split personality. Jesus has always been and always will be God, but at a point in time, he became human. A human nature was added to the person who existed from all eternity as the very essence of God. A person wasn't added. Jesus wasn't two persons during his stay here on the earth. And neither did he possess only one nature that was the result of the mingling of the two natures. No, the addition of this human nature took place without any mixing in his divine nature. A human nature was added to the person who existed from all eternity as the very essence of God. That is why we refer to Jesus as the God-man. God-man. He was not divinely human, and he was not humanly divine. He was not a deified man. He was not a humanized God. He was as much God as if he were not man at all, and he was as much man as if he were not God at all. He was not all God and no man. He was not all man and no God. He was not half God and half man. He is the God-man. In theology, this is referred to as the hypostatic union. Jesus did not, contrary to popular opinion, even among many Christians, Jesus did not exchange his deity for his humanity. He didn't make a trade. He took on or added human form. He became a man. Prior to the incarnation, Jesus enjoyed heaven's glory together with the independent and externally unlimited exercise of the powers and prerogatives of deity. But during his humiliated state here on planet earth, he emptied himself, not of his deity, he emptied himself of the independent use of his attributes of deity. He took the form of a servant. He is the God-man. This is what Scripture teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's okay to try to figure out how all that works together. It's okay to try to figure out how all that fits, just as long as you don't allow your logic to overrule what God has said. Let me mention a specific area where this sometimes happens. 
When people consider the New Testament accounts of Jesus being tempted by Satan, it is very easy to err on one side or the other. What I mean is, some people use their logic and they come to faulty conclusions about the temptations of Jesus. What is an accurate biblical perspective of the temptations of Jesus? It is this. Because Jesus was God, he could not have sinned. But because Jesus was human, his temptations were real and genuine temptations to sin. We can't completely comprehend those two realities being true, but they are true. Our tendency is to err on one side or the other. Either we err by saying the temptations of Jesus weren't really temptations because his deity protected him from genuinely being tempted. That's one error on one side, is to say they weren't real. The other error on the other side is to say, well, because they were real, he could have sinned and then ceased to be God. Both views are erroneous. But probably the most common tendency of these two is to err by saying that the temptations of Jesus weren't really temptations to him because his deity protected him from genuinely being tempted. Beloved, that is not true. It is true that because of his deity, he could not have sinned. But it isn't true that his temptations were not genuine temptations to sin. If you're like me, your head is probably spinning right now. So let's give our brains a brief respite by turning together to Mark chapter 1. If you're not already there, turn with me to the second gospel record, the second gospel account, the gospel according to Mark chapter 1. Please follow along as I read verses 9 through 13, although our focus of the message will be verses 12 and 13, having considered 9 through 11 last Lord's Day. Verse 9 tells us, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. This is Mark's brief account of Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Both Matthew and Luke give many more details than Mark. Matthew and Luke each mention three specific temptations that Satan threw at Jesus. And both Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus was victorious by using Scripture to combat Satan's temptations. As you can see, Mark doesn't give us those details. He simply tells us that Jesus was tempted... And the clear implication is that he was victorious. Before we begin considering this text specifically, allow me to answer a, uh, answer a very important question. The question is this. Why was Jesus able to resist the temptations Satan threw at him 
and able not to sin when he was tempted. Why was Jesus able to resist the temptations of Satan? Many people would answer that question by saying this. The reason why Jesus didn't sin is because he is God. That is not the correct answer to the question. It is true that Jesus was God, but that is not why he was victorious over temptation. There is nothing anywhere in Scripture which suggests that the reason why Jesus did not sin was because he was God. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he did not say, Who do you think you are, Satan? You can't tempt me. I'm God. There's no use trying to tempt me because my deity will protect me from sinning. That's not even remotely close to what Jesus said. On the contrary, Jesus did not rely upon his deity to resist temptation. He faced and defeated temptation with the same resources that you and I have at our disposal. Did you hear that? Jesus faced and defeated temptation with the same resources that you and I have at our disposal. I want to stress this point because, frankly, many Christians simply dismiss the example of Jesus by saying things like this. Well, of course Jesus didn't sin. He was God. And what they are saying really is this. There is nothing practical for me to glean from the experience of Jesus because I don't have the same advantage he had because I'm not divine. My guess is that most Christians feel that way about this example of the temptations of Jesus. They believe that there is nothing in Jesus' experience that can really help them because, after all, the reason why Jesus resisted temptation was because of his deity. Beloved, hear me when I say that is not the case at all. Please do not dismiss the example of Jesus because you think it was his deity that protected him from temptation. That is not true. That is not accurate. Jesus faced and defeated temptation with the same resources that you and I have at our disposal. It would be a tragedy if you dismiss Jesus' example by saying it was his deity that protected him from temptation. Why was Jesus able to resist temptations and able not to sin when he was tempted? The answer is this. Because he knew the word of God, he believed the word of God, he embraced the word of God, he followed the word of God, and he applied the word of God. That's why Jesus was victorious over temptation, and it is the same path we can follow. Let me illustrate this another way. It used to be, not too long ago, it used to be that when people would swim or try to swim the English Channel, they would simply get into the water and go. They would take off swimming. Some made it, and some did not. Because some did not, it is my understanding that you are no longer allowed to simply get in the water and take off swimming. Now you must get into a boat that is a little ways offshore, and then you are put in a large cage that surrounds you but doesn't touch you, 
as you attempt to swim across the English Channel. That way, if you run out of energy and begin to sink or drown, the cage is there to catch you so you can be pulled into the boat. So in light of those facts, how is it that those who swim across the English Channel are able to make it all the way across the English Channel? How do they do it? How do they get there? Wrong answer? The cage. It's not because of the cage. It's because they keep swimming. The cage doesn't help anyone swim across. The cage doesn't carry people across. The cage is only there to pull you into the boat if you are drowning. So the people who make it across the English Channel make it because they keep swimming. In the same way, the fact that Jesus was and is God is not what kept him from sinning. Jesus could not sin because he was God. But he did not sin because he resisted temptation by using the same means you and I can use. Let me say that again. Jesus could not sin because he was God. But he did not sin because he resisted temptation by using the same means you and I can use. Jesus relied upon the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to resist temptation. Beloved, you and I can do the same thing if we will. So with that in mind, Let's look at these verses together. Mark tells us in verse 12, Immediately the Spirit drove him, the him of course is Jesus, immediately the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Mark begins this verse with his favorite word, immediately. Translated in various ways in our English translations. The Greek word euthus, it's usually translated immediately, but not always. This is the same word he used up in verse 10 to describe his baptism where it says, And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. So this word is used in verse 10, which was the first of the 42 uses throughout the Gospel of Mark. 42 times Mark uses this word in his Gospel account. The temptations of Jesus took place immediately after he had been baptized to show that he is the Messiah of Israel and the perfect servant of Yahweh. That is why he was baptized. His baptism revealed the fact that he is the Messiah of Israel, the perfect servant of Yahweh. On that occasion, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus and the Father spoke from heaven. So the servant has been launched into service. He's been launched into his ministry, and now he will be tested immediately, right away. His baptism affirmed that he is the perfect servant. His temptations verify it. To say it another way, his baptism asserted that he is the perfect servant. His temptations prove it. His temptations confirm it. It's interesting to note the clear distinction that Mark makes here in these two verses. He tells us that Jesus was impelled by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan. Don't mix those two up. He was impelled by the Spirit, tempted by Satan. 
The Spirit was the one who led Jesus or drove Jesus into the wilderness, and Satan was the one who tempted him. It might sound strange for us to hear those thoughts put together, but frankly, this is not an unusual combination in God's way of working. Let me explain. The Scripture is clear that God does not tempt anyone with evil, but God does sometimes put us in situations that will become a test to us because of the temptations that will come our way. In fact, the same Greek word in the New Testament that is translated trials in our Bible is also translated temptations in our Bible. What that tells us is that every difficult circumstance that enters a believer's life can strengthen him if he obeys God and remains confident in his care, or it can become a solicitation to evil if the believer chooses instead to doubt God and disobey his word. Every trial then, catch this, every trial becomes a test of faith designed to strengthen. If the believer fails the test by wrongly responding, that test then becomes a temptation or a solicitation to evil. That's the relationship we see here in these verses. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness as a test to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Israel. That was the Spirit's purpose. That was the Spirit's intention. But Satan used the occasion as a temptation to sin. Beloved, this is something so critical to learn about in life. God allows, or dare I say, God brings situations into our lives as tests to prove and strengthen our character. But Satan attempts to use those same same situations to draw us into sin. In other words, God brings us through trials to prove us, to strengthen us, but Satan piggybacks on those trials and then tempts us to sin against God. So be warned. Be aware. When you go through trials in life, When you go through tests in life, watch it. Because you can just about guarantee that Satan will be present to tempt you to sin in the midst of your trial. Be warned. And remember that Jesus faced this same kind of scenario in his life. The word that Mark uses in this verse to describe the activity of the Spirit in this situation is a very strong word. Two English translations say the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And two other English translations say the Spirit impelled him. The NIV says the Spirit sent him out into the desert. The wilderness in which Jesus was tempted was probably the Judean wilderness, which is the region of land east of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Hebron, down in the Jordan Rift Valley. It's not that large of an area, maybe 20 miles square, 
But it really is a desert wilderness. Having spent some time there, I came away with the impression that it's not very big as deserts go or wilderness regions, but it is easily severe enough to kill you. Not only can the desert conditions kill you, so could the wild beasts. And so Mark adds verse 13. He says, And he, Jesus, was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Matthew and Luke tell us that these forty days were spent fasting. This was an extremely long fast. Two other men in Scripture also fasted for this length of time, Moses and Elijah. So we know that this is not something that is humanly impossible to do. It was certainly extremely difficult, but not impossible. However, the primary purpose of this time was for Jesus to be tested as he was tempted by Satan. That's what this verse tells us. He was there tempted by Satan. The title Satan comes from a Hebrew word that means adversary or enemy. This title is used 52 times in the Bible to to refer to the devil. Satan is our Lord's enemy and our enemy. He is the Lord's adversary and he is our adversary. He is the Lord's opposer and our opposer. Satan is a real personal being. Not just an idea, not just a concept, not just a picture of evil. He is a real personal being. In fact, Satan's existence is recognized by every single writer of the New Testament. Not necessarily every book mentions him, but every writer in the New Testament says something about him. Nineteen of the 27 books in the New Testament mention Satan by one of his names or titles. Twenty-five times in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, our Lord speaks of the reality of Satan. Twenty-five times. He is called in Scripture the prince of this world. He is called the prince of the power of the air. He is called the god of this age. He is called the prince of demons. He is called Lucifer, Satan, the devil, the old serpent, The great dragon, he is called the evil one. He is called the tempter, the deceiver, the accuser, and the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. And he's not just called those names for fun. He is a formidable foe. And he sought to bring down the Lord Jesus before his public ministry even got off the ground. He wanted to... You know, we use the expression, nip it in the bud, before it gets started. He wanted to defeat Jesus before Jesus ever got started. He tempted Jesus in multiple ways. He sought to get Jesus to doubt God's goodness. He sought to get Jesus to doubt God's care. He sought to tempt Jesus to distrust God. He sought to tempt Jesus to presume upon God. He sought to tempt Jesus to test God. 
But our Lord resisted him by turning to inspired Scripture every time. Jesus repeatedly quoted Scripture to combat Satan's temptations and his attacks. As I mentioned earlier, Matthew and Luke each record three specific temptations that Satan threw at Jesus, but we should not conclude that there were only three. I mean, this wasn't, you know, a little five-minute ordeal, three temptations, and you're done. This, is, this, this verse tells us that Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days tempted by Satan. The way it reads indicates that the tests and the temptations of Jesus continued on throughout the 40-day period. Our Lord was bombarded by temptations from Satan. That is a long time to face severe temptations. When you are hungry and weak, it makes you even more vulnerable to give in to external pressures and tests and temptations. In fact, a few years ago, a friend of mine shared with me a very helpful insight concerning temptation and sin. He said that he keeps his mind especially alert to temptation by using the word halt, H-A-L-T. The H stands for hungry. The A stands for angry. The L stands for lonely. And the T stands for tired. Thus the word halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. We are always susceptible to temptation. We're we're always susceptible to sin, but especially so when we are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. That is a good insight and a valid one. Now think about that in relation to what we read here. Jesus spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness, so he was undoubtedly hungry. It's also very likely that he was tired, Because I don't know how much rest and sleep you can get out in the wilderness. He was also lonely. And Mark emphasizes this point by saying that Jesus was with the wild beasts. Only Mark, by the way, makes that comment when telling about these temptations. So Jesus was in a position to be especially vulnerable to temptation. He was hungry, lonely, tired but he passed all the tests. Mark doesn't state that specifically, but the way he words this account lets us know that Jesus was victorious and he launched into his public ministry as the rest of this chapter describes. There are two very fascinating details that Mark gives us here in verse 13. The first one is what I mentioned just a moment ago. Mark is the only gospel writer to say anything about Jesus being with the wild beasts. That highlights the fact that Jesus was alone and isolated from people, but it also brings up interesting questions in our minds about any interaction Jesus may have had with the wild beasts. As you know from reading various stories in the Old Testament, there was a time when the land of Israel had so much forest area that it actually had bears and lions. David, King David, before he was king, said he had to fight off both when he was keeping the sheep. On one occasion, a bear. On one occasion, a lion. We don't know if there were still bears and lions in the land by the New Testament time, but there were still 
a lot of other creatures that inhabited the wilderness and still inhabit the wilderness of Judah, of Judea today in the land of Israel. There were foxes and hedgehogs and scorpions and wolves and leopards and snakes and ibex and hyenas and sand rats and oryx and onagers and ostriches and gazelles and adax and lizards and rodents and birds of prey and wild donkeys and several kinds of vultures. All of these creatures have been part of the land of Israel down through the centuries. And that's why we can't help but wonder what all is behind Mark's statement that Jesus was with the wild beasts. Think about this. He was their creator. And he dwelt among them for 40 days in the wilderness. And then Mark added another interesting phrase at the end of verse 13. He says, And the angels ministered to him. The angels ministered to Jesus during this time. In fact, the tense of the verb that Mark uses here implies that this was an ongoing activity and not something that happened only after all the temptations were done. So it may be that the angels ministered to Jesus throughout the 40 days of fasting and temptation. What did the angels do? Are you ready for this? I don't know. I don't have a clue. We're not told. Psalm 91, 11 and 12 says, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Those verses talk about God's angels ministering to God's people. Interestingly, especially in light of this context of of the wild beasts that Jesus was with, The very next verse in Psalm 91 says this, You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. So what did the angels do for Jesus? We don't know. We're not told. But maybe, just maybe, the angels ministered to Jesus by protecting him from the wild beasts that were all around him as he spent those 40 days and nights in the wilderness. That's just just conjecture on my part. But it is fascinating to think about the implications of these two brief statements made by Mark. He was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him. As I said earlier, 40 days is a long time to endure these kinds of tests and temptations. In fact, do something right now with me for just just a brief moment. Think back 40 days, 40 days ago. So just calculate in your mind over a month ago, add 10 days. Think back 40 days and try to imagine what it would be like if you had been under this kind of pressure for the last 40 days. Or think about it a different way. Think of how you would feel if somehow, right now, this very moment, an angel were to come to you and tell you that for the next 40 days, for the next 40 days, you will experience this kind of test and these kinds of temptations. You will be driven into the wilderness, you will dwell with wild beasts, and you will be tempted by Satan as a continual onslaught for 40 days while you go without food. That is staggering to contemplate. 
That's what our Lord experienced. And it's all summed up in these two brief verses here in Mark's Gospel. These verses are brief, but their, their message is astounding. Their significance is astounding. Jesus, the perfect servant of Yahweh, passed all the tests. He resisted all the temptations. He came out victorious and launched into his public ministry. Now, of course, this raises a question in our minds that Mark doesn't answer. Matthew and Luke do. But the question is, how? How was Jesus able to do it? How was he victorious? Well, let's turn to Matthew 4 to answer that question as we begin to wind down our look at our Lord's period of temptations in the wilderness. Back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. Here, Matthew records the same event as does Luke. But as I mentioned, Matthew and Luke give us more details. So we'll look at Matthew's account. Verse 1 says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, this is Satan, called Satan by Mark, the tempter by Matthew, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. This was Satan's way of saying, listen, Jesus, since you are the Son of God, why don't you just use your divine power to create some food for yourself? You could do this. Look at all these rocks around here. Turn them into bread. That would have been an improper and thus sinful way for Jesus to use his divine power. Furthermore, Jesus also knew that Satan was trying to plant doubts in his mind regarding God's goodness. It was as if Satan was saying, what kind of God do you have if he will allow you to starve out here in this God-forsaken wilderness? What kind of God is that? God isn't going to take care of you, Jesus. He doesn't care. Look, you're alone. You're forsaken. Verse 4, But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Notice how Jesus battled temptation. He quoted an exact scripture, specifically Deuteronomy 8.3. This verse, back in its original context, pertained to God allowing Israel to hunger so that he might feed them with manna and teach them to trust him to provide for them. So it was an exact parallel to the situation Jesus was in. Jesus thought of a verse that had an exact parallel and a direct application to his situation. Now, beloved, think about what you see here. Think about what is going on here. If Jesus needed to know Scripture to be able to use it in life and ministry and temptation, how much more do we need to know Scripture to be able to use it in life and ministry and temptation? Jesus used Scripture to resist temptation. Verse 5 tells us, Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, 
This was a, a high point of the temple with a drop. We know from archaeology, archaeological records, this is a drop about 450 feet. So that's way up there. Make, you look down to make your head spin, dizzy from that height. Put him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Oh, now notice what's going on. Here Satan uses Scripture, but he twists it by, by leaving out a very important phrase from the original. If you can compare this quotation of Satan with what it says back in the Old Testament, he leaves out the phrase, in all your ways, referring to God. In other words, these passages are about trusting God when following his ways. But Satan used them to encourage Jesus to test God or presume upon God. Trusting God is right. Testing God is wrong. Trusting God is right. Presuming upon God is wrong. Jesus knew the difference. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. And the word means to presume upon. Jesus knew the difference between trusting God and testing God or presuming upon God. So he quoted this passage from Deuteronomy 6.16 to combat Satan's distortion of Scripture. And then verse 8, again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship you. Worship me. By the way, this was not an empty claim that Satan was making. Not empty at all. He is the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air and the god of this age. So there is a sense in which all the kingdoms of the world are his. And he was offering to Jesus. Offering these to Jesus. Thus, he was, a attempting, he was attempting to get Jesus to take a shortcut. Satan offered to give all these kingdoms to Jesus earlier than God. But Jesus was completely submitted to doing things God's way, following God's plan on his timing. So in verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Beloved, I want us to see, it's so important that we see, that Jesus was successful in spiritual warfare because he knew how to accurately, specifically use the statements of God. It is so important that we see this and learn from our Lord's example. Don't dismiss it. Don't say, well, of course Jesus didn't sin. He was God. Don't do that. It's not why he didn't sin. He didn't sin because he knew how to accurately, specifically use the statements of God. And he is our example. We must learn from his example because, as you well know, Satan is going to tempt us. There's no doubt about it. And he will often tempt us in ways very similar to how he, how he tempted Jesus. He will tempt us to doubt God's goodness. Have you ever been there? Ever gone through something in life and Satan tempts you to doubt God's goodness? He will tempt us to doubt God's care. 
You ever had the thought, God doesn't care. He doesn't care what I'm going through. He doesn't really care about this. Satan will tempt us to distrust God and to solve our problems our own way, by our own plans. He will tempt us to presume upon God and test God. He will tempt us to follow our selfish ambitions and do things our way. And, don't forget this, he will twist Scripture to convince us that it's all okay. Will you be able to resist his temptations by following our Lord's example? That's what we are to take from this example of our Lord recorded in both Matthew and Luke in detail and mentioned by Mark. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As you bow your head and close your eyes so you're not distracted by any movement around you, First of all, if you know the Lord, if you're a child of God, then think about what you have seen this morning in God's Word as far as the practical application for our lives, looking at and learning from the example of Jesus, how He defeated temptation with Scripture, specific Scripture. And let our Lord's example be an encouragement to us, a challenge to us to battle the same way, to continue learning the Word of God so we can battle when Satan tempts us to doubt God's goodness, doubt God's care, when Satan tempts us to distrust God, to presume upon God, test God. We need to learn from our Lord's example. And if you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, then the issue that you need to understand is that you can't really be victorious over the enemy You can't be victorious over Satan without Jesus Christ in your life. So the issue for you that you you need to face today is your standing with Jesus Christ. Your relationship to or lack of relationship with Jesus Christ. If that's you, or if there's any doubt in your mind this morning, you need to resolve that issue. Right where you are seated in the quietness of your own heart before God, even as, as the example Jesus told on one occasion his, a teaching, in his teaching about a man who went up to the temple to pray, and it says he wouldn't even lift his eyes. He just kept his head bowed and his eyes closed, and he beat on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He called out to God for forgiveness, and Jesus said that man went home justified. So if you're here today without a right relationship to Jesus Christ, then call out to him in humility, in repentance. Say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Cleanse me. Take me. Make me the man you want me to be or the woman you want me to be. If you are not right with God, I urge you to surrender to Christ today. Pray that prayer or something similar. You don't have to use those exact words, but Affirm your surrender to Christ and come to know him. Father, as we close our time together this morning, we are so grateful for the example of our Lord in so many ways of life, but especially this one that we have seen this morning. How he models for us the way to victory, the way to 
defeat temptation. May we learn from his example and emulate it in our own lives. And in closing, we pray for anyone who is with us this morning who cannot call you Father, who does not stand in a right relationship with you through faith in your Son. May your Holy Spirit bring conviction to that person's heart, understanding, enlightenment, so that today he or she would turn to Jesus Christ, call out to him, maybe even this very moment, call out to him for salvation, for forgiveness, for new life. And we pray all of these things in the matchless and precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.